Today's show is brought to you by Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that automatically applies the best discounts and coupon codes to your online purchases. Download it for free at joinhoney.com slash real. Today's show is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free by visiting ZipRecruiter.com slash real. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast where we talk about exactly that every single week. Real life, which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had. Some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things. And maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. Guys, drum roll, please. Hopefully you can hear that on the mic. Today is an enormous day. It is my book's To Hell With The Hustle's birthday. This book is, I don't know, do you call it one year old or I guess zero years old because it comes out today. So it's born. It was this, today is the birth of the book. Oh my goodness, you guys, I'm so excited. If you were listening to this on the day the podcast comes out, usually Monday or Tuesday, October 14th or 15th, then that means the book is out. This is book launch week. Woo! So stoked. Um, I'm probably in New York actually on podcasts and media and all that stuff when you're listening to this, but I thought for a fun treat, we would drop another nug on the podcast. So if you are listening, you're about to get hopefully blessed, hopefully encouraged. I don't want to toot my own horn on the work, but I hopefully think you will be um, with chapter one. So this is kind of the thesis of the book. When you listen to this first chapter, it gives the overview and kind of the why behind the entire book. And I love it. And the concept of formations versus goals has actually been something that changed our life the last four or five years. And that'll make more sense when you listen. But go out and get the book. It's anywhere books are sold. You can get on audiobook, ebook. Just go get it. Send me a picture. Tag me. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm trying to read every single message I can from you guys. But um, also, besides that, hope you enjoy first chapter. Here it is. Chapter one. We're being formed whether we like it or not. If a whiteboard were a love language, it would definitely be mine. Who cares about quality time or acts of service? I just want to brainstorm and scribble out ideas. While I also love to use the whiteboard for just about anything, it also shows up in a few predictable and big waves for our family at the end of every year during our Beth Key Family Summit. This is a fun practice we started a few years ago where we carve out a few days at the end of every December to reflect on the past year, cast vision for the coming year, and check in on how we are doing in areas like growing together, parenting the kids, and more. On the first year of our summit, Alyssa and I had a nice dinner away from the kids, and with a blank journal nearby, we started asking and answering questions. Now it's evolved and grown into a multi-day, super fun and celebratory reflection camp that includes our toddler-aged kids. It's like a corporate team-building event plus a vision-casting retreat, yet just for our little family. And when they're older, we'll incorporate our kids' input more, too. But here's one thing that might surprise you. One of our rules for the summit is no talking about goals. We aren't allowed to talk about or even use the language or word goals. We spend a few days reflecting and dreaming and connecting about the past year and the one coming up, and we don't even set one goal. Why? There's a principle in financial investing called a stop-loss order. It's essentially a benchmark set to automatically get rid of a stock if it drops below a certain value. 
So if you buy a stock for $50, then you could set a stop loss order for $30. And if the stock dips to $30, it'd automatically be sold in the system without you actively doing it. A few years ago, Alyssa and I looked at each other and knew that we had reached our stop loss order for goals. The results we were getting from the goals we were setting had dipped far below what we wanted to get back from them. So we sold it back into the system, moved on. We haven't set goals since. And here's why. For our family, goals haven't really helped us become who we want to be. So we swapped them with one word, formations, which is the, quote, process of forming. Now, what's the difference? Keep in mind the definition of a goal is, quote, the object of a person's ambition or effort and an aim or desired result. You can already see a stark difference between a goal and a formation just from their definitions. One is about the end, the other is about the present. One is about doing, the other is about being. One is about the results, and the other is about the process. To me, they are similar, but the word formations seems to capture a bigger, truer idea. Goals are about what practices I'm doing. Formations are too, but because they add a few extra words in the beginning, they take on a deeper layer. Formations are who am I becoming through the practices I'm doing. While this has been a tiny and perhaps a semantic change, it has yielded a massive difference in our lives. It has shifted our North Star so we see ourselves through not what we achieve, but who we are becoming, and we are putting tiny, micro, and repeatable practices in our path that will take us there. In short, how we live forms us into a particular human, and we have to ask, is that the same human Jesus envisioned for our flourishing and our lives? I think if we were honest, most of us would answer no. I'll even say it a little more plainly for those in the back. We as humans are the summation of our repeated practices and rituals. Humans are not made, we are formed. So Alyssa and I, over the last few years, have leaned into this forming idea, asking ourselves, who are we becoming through the practices we are doing? And can we create or point ourselves toward certain practices that make us the fuller, richer, more anchored humans we are meant to be? And this matters for a few reasons. One, it feels more human. We are designed and primarily wired for becoming, not achieving. And two, I think in Christian circles, we tend to focus far too much on assessing every decision we make through a lens of morality, asking, is it right or is it wrong? Now, there is merit to this, but I think it's too simple. It's too elementary. And it doesn't take us where we need to go, ultimately. It's why a Christian may not be doing anything morally wrong, yet is addicted to being busy, feeling frantic, and overall staying anxious in their work and relationships, which clearly doesn't line up with the way of Jesus. To follow Jesus, we need to not just follow his teaching, but also follow his way, his process, his cadence, his demeanor, his spirit, and his very essence. Who am I becoming through the practices I'm doing? That's the better and truer question. A couple of the small changes Alyssa and I have pursued are honoring a family Sabbath, never allowing phones in the bedrooms, and turning off our phones once a week for a 24-hour period. And these have yielded massive results. And guess what? There's no finish line on them because they aren't goals. We aren't trying to do them for a month or a year or only do them 100 times and then take them off the list. 
we are committed to consistently and constantly coming back to these repeatable behaviors over decades, knowing that they are forming and making us into people we want to become. Becoming like Jesus is the one and only, quote, goal we have. I'm also fully aware that sounds a little cliche and corny, but it has shifted and changed our behavior by pointing all of our formation towards the true north of intimacy with Jesus. We're not just doing a bunch of things. We're leaning on our very practices to take us there, to form us. But first, let's chat about where our cultural practices are currently taking us before we chat about where they should be taking us. Information is killing us. We have access to an unprecedented amount of information. We can essentially read, watch, look up, and listen to just about anything at any time. We also care more about and do more with that information than ever before. I don't think we can even envision a farmer in 1803 spending copious amounts of time counting his calories or doing some new coconut oil life hack for the longevity of his skin. We are focused on trying to be better than ever. We have more goal-setting tools and more tips and tricks to help us become faster, better, and stronger people. But at what point do we pause and ask the obvious question? With all this authority and knowledge and enhancement to our personal lives, why aren't we immensely better for it? Why are we maybe even worse because of it? Essentially, why aren't we superhuman yet? Maybe it's because we aren't supposed to be. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to tell you about honey. You guys know we love honey. It's really, really cool. And it's kind of like one of those why not things you would do because I don't know about you, but every time I buy something online, I'm trying to look for discount codes and uh, promotions and all these different things. And honey is just basically a browser extension that I use for Google Chrome that helps me do that. It's super, super awesome. And I love it. So what they do is they save you time and money when you shop online because it scans the internet for you for coupon codes and discounts, and then automatically applies those with the biggest savings to your cart at checkout out and uh, it knows about every coupon code sale or discount at over like 20,000 stores, Amazon, Macy's, J. Crew, Domino's, Sephora, Target, and more. Um, and I really, really love them. I actually, uh, what's, what was it last time on Amazon? I think got a hard drive and boom, you click the button, it finds the savings and you save like $23. Boom. And it's that easy. So it almost feels like it's just the simplest, easiest thing to get some money back. And it's super, super awesome. And I love it just because the, the, ability of ease for it for what it's actually saving you is incredible and they've actually found uh, over 10 million users have saved over a billion dollars based on the uh, browser extension so it's really cool so it's free to use and install on your computer in just two clicks get honey for free at joinhoney.com real again that's joinhoney.com real To the many life hackers out there who are trying to optimize their bodies and health and minds, thinking that somehow they will unlock the key to life by doing so, I ask, have you ever taken an honest look at the human body to see how ridiculously inefficient and gross it actually is? It doesn't matter what new biohacking diet we are on, we still expel waste out of our bodies every single day. We are literally waste-creating devices. And by the way, guys, for those listening, I said that way more blunt in the actual manuscript. Thank God for editors Janine and Jenny, who made it sound a little bit better. And if we don't shower or put on some type of deodorant, we begin to smell quickly. 
We aren't shiny machines trying to get newer and better software updates. We are earthen vessels of dust with the very Spirit of God in us. While we're busy trying out the latest productivity system, at the end of the day, we still need to sleep eight hours. Or if you're like me, I like to take a midday nap and usually sleep for about nine hours. Imagine if Apple tried to sell you a computer and they advertised it by saying, this computer is inoperable for eight hours a day and also takes a nap in the middle of the day. Have you ever reconciled the fact that if you live to 90, you will have slept for 30 full years of your life, an entire 30 years with your eyes closed, not engaged in the world, not even awake, and certainly not doing anything that the world deems productive? Maybe it would do us good to actually ponder the age-old wisdom, quote, all come from dust and to dust all return, Ecclesiastes 3.20. Our bodies are filthy, gross, smelly, and decaying. But before we get too down on ourselves, let's also remember that when God wanted to enter our story, how did he do it? By wrapping himself in one of those very same bodies, forever making the body holy and forever glorified. So how many bulletproof coffees do we have to drink before we actually start becoming the person we want to become? How many bullet journals do we have to crack open? Podcasts do we have to listen to? Whole 30 initiatives do we have to start before we can be finished? The truth is, we are informationally obese, gorging ourselves on information until we are sick and unhealthy. Just one more podcast, one more YouTube video, one more hack to achieve a more optimized life. But we keep wondering, why isn't anything changing? Why do we achieve a goal or a dream yet still feel as unfilled and anxious as ever? Was a tent maker in the first century or a farmer in the 17th century really worse off because they didn't know how to go from good to great or they weren't sure of the seven habits of highly effective people? Both are good books, by the way. Or maybe they knew something we didn't. Maybe they didn't know everything we know, and that was actually the blessing. On average, people 200 years ago were lucky to read 50 books in their entire lifetime. Today, people spend more time watching episodes or movies, and they watch more than 50, sometimes just in a week or two. The information onslaught is an intense issue that we haven't dealt with before. Now, not all information is bad, of course. Helpful tips about ways to live better have blessed many, myself included. I, too, have found little tips online that have helped my focus and energy. But what if we were attempting to exchange wisdom for shortcuts? See, one requires years of life experiences, while the other simply requires a Google search. Today, we face a huge gap between who we are and who we want to be simply because we can actually see that gap better than ever before. By just opening up Instagram or reading Facebook posts, we see a different, perhaps ideal self we wish we were. Call it gorging on information. Call it getting drunk on information. Call it information abuse or addiction. Whatever you call it, it's killing us, and it's doing it silently. And I say, give or take about 80 years before there will be a strong cultural consensus saying, yeah, this isn't what we thought it was. Let's not forget that cocaine was considered a wonder drug 100 years ago, and companies put it in butter and wine and soda. It was even marketed as helpful for curing stomach aches and depression. In the 1930s and 1940s, even after tobacco companies started to realize their product was harmful in causing people to die, they didn't shut down or change. 
No, they actually paid millions of dollars to hire PR firms to convince doctors to smoke cigarettes, believing that if they could show the world that doctors were okay with smoking, then regular people would be too. I have to wonder, are social media and Google the tobacco companies of the 21st century? Are smartphones the cocaine of today? After all, our society has long had a pattern of considering something new as immediately invigorating and exciting and adopting it at full scale and with full embrace without questioning the consequences. Then, 30 or 50 years later, the negative impacts begin to show and then regulation starts to pop up. Sadly, innovation always outpaces regulation. The cycle is always the same. It usually goes a little something like this in this four-step process. Step one, this is cool and exciting. Step two, this is actually the best thing ever created. How did people even live without it before? Step three, this is still the best thing ever, and I can't imagine my life without it, but it seems to be hurting me now. Step four, ah, yes, it's definitely hurting me, and I probably need to live without it in some way. Let's make a few rules to help us out. As a society, I'd say we are currently in number two with a few people starting to recognize and live into number three, which means we still have a long way to go until there are appropriate boundaries and maybe even government intervention in 2050. Here's just a few insane flyovers to describe just how much information we are talking about. Five quintillion bytes of data is created every single day. Only 0.5% of all data is ever analyzed or used Every two days, we develop as much information as we did between the dawn of civilization and the year 2003. By 2020, 1.7 megabytes of new information will be created every second for every human being on the earth. To think that in just 48 hours, the amount of information and data produced in the world will have been equal to all the information from the beginning of time until the turn of the century is unbelievable. That means the actual amount of data we consume in one day would have been one person's entire lifetime's worth of data in 1574. We are fat and drunk on information, stumbling through our lives, except this abuse is the most culturally accepted in the history of mankind. In fact, we don't even recognize there is a problem yet. We are all, quote, data junkies living in a data junkyard, as one author put it. The more we consume information and the more we keep our faces in front of the water hose of the internet, the more we lose the very skills needed to say no to it in the first place. We lose a long, steady focus and a deep flow for work. This is probably why 10 years ago you'd read for three hours at a time, but now you can only go on for 10 minutes before checking text messages. With all this data and information, we are more obsessed with metrics and goals than ever, but our telos which is Greek for, quote, our ultimate end or aim, our vision of the good life, doesn't seem to be becoming a reality. But let's pause there for a second. The word telos is really important to this discussion. We don't have a modern English equivalent of the word, but our telos is that picture we all hold in our minds of, yes, that's where I want to go. That's who I want to be, and that's how I want it to look like when I get there. And whether we realize it or not, our telos is our most primal defining feature. We will bend and break an entire life around what we believe our telos to be. And this is why it's specifically important to enter the conversation around information and data. 
because we lean into information because we believe it's going to give us a certain future, a.k.a. our telos. But how's that going for us? When are we going to realize it's not taking us where we want to go? The bottom line is we can't research or think ourselves to be a better version of ourselves. And this has to be reckoned with. We are not computers just waiting for a data offload or a software update. In fact, we are more creaturely than we think, more primal, more animalistic. And while those drives and desires in us can be bent towards things that are evil or unhealthy, we also have to remember that we are creatures before the curse as well. In other words, our impulses and desires and drives are part of what it means to be human. And pointing those desires or drives or impulses in the wrong direction is what it means to not be human. We do not become just what we think, we become what we desire. We are not just shaped by facts, we are shaped by what we love. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to tell you about one of this week's sponsors. You guys know we love ZipRecruiter. I've told you about before, Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, is a fun little story as the director of coffee, which I wish I had that name and title. I'm going to get business cards that say that anyway. So wouldn't that be fun? Um, and he was having trouble finding qualified candidates, so he switched to ZipRecruiter and they helped him out. Now, if you don't know, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. So it's basically this technology that identifies people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates really fast. It's really, really cool. And the rating feature allows you to filter applicants so you can focus on the best ones, the most relevant ones. And so uh, back to that story with Dylan, he found a candidate in just a couple days. And so it's cool because four out of five employers who actually post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Super awesome and efficient for your business. I know it's really helpful for us. So see why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. So try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash real. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash real, R-E-A-L, ZipRecruiter.com slash real. Goals are finite and final. The term goals was virtually non-existent before 1920. On a graph, looking at any mention of the word in all of literature across the board, it's pretty much a flat line until 1920, when it started to uptick and has continued to shoot up and to the right for the past 90 to 100 years. Yet generations before us built countries without goal setting. Electricity and the light bulb were invented without bullet journals. New modes of transportation like the locomotive train and the cross-country tracks that allowed unheard of travel across the new frontier were created without New Year's resolutions. It almost makes me feel bad for Alexander Hamilton or Mozart, because if only they would have known about goal setting. No, here's the bitter truth. A lot of people have the same goals, but not a lot of people reach them. If you asked an NBA player what his goal was, he would probably say to win a championship. The winner and losers always have the same goals, but they don't always have the same systems. When I look back at my old journals, I laugh at how ridiculous and naive and uninformed I used to be. But right after I stop laughing, I'm struck with fear, wondering if I will look back at myself now today in five years and think the same thing. Probably. But that's how growth as humans work. A few years ago, my goals included eat better, write a book, read my Bible every day, and get an A in philosophy class which I don't put this in the actual book, but if you're listening to the audiobook, I think I got like a C minus or a D plus. So definitely did not reach that goal. And I do remember that class. I then set actionable steps to try and achieve each one, usually with a benchmark of my ideal reality. I wanted to eat better so I could have six pack abs. 
I wanted to write a book so I could say I was a published author, and I wanted to read my Bible every day so I could become a better Christian. But then I started running into walls. Most of my goals, especially the big yearly ones, I'd start on New Year's Day. They would only last until February, and then I'd completely abandon or forget them. Because the hard truth is, finish lines and end result motivators do not change us. They usually feel too daunting or too disconnected from our current everyday lives. And most people don't thrive under the pressure that we heap on ourselves to hit an exact bullseye, not to mention that we feel ashamed if we miss it. We need to stop thinking, I'm not that awesome or good enough right now, but if I can just do this one thing, then maybe I'll feel better about myself. The idea that somehow the achievement of a goal will make us a certain type of person and that it'll immediately rid us of our current unhappiness and discontentment just isn't true. I've begun to understand that we are created for formations, not goal setting. In general, goals are usually about a finish line, something you can reach for and then be done once you accomplished it, like we talked about earlier. It's about doing something. Formations, on the other hand, aren't about doing something, but about becoming someone. One is usually about activity, while the other is about identity. Goals are linear and resemble a straight line, but formations look more like a circle, where you are constantly coming back to the same place to seek renewal and refreshment in a particular practice. One is about a result, the other is about a process. Some people, when they begin a new hobby, get a huge burst of ambition. Take running, for example. They'll almost immediately tell themselves, I want to run a 10K or a half marathon by this time next year. Now, that's helpful and that's great, but I think there is a better approach, and that is to focus on identity instead. Say, I want to be someone who runs as a normal part of my life, or I will run at least five minutes five days a week. There's no finish line, nothing to really accomplish. Make it more of a practice or a way of life that'll hopefully stay with you for the next 60 years. Because it's not about the marathon. It's about, I'm a runner. And the latter, to me, brings longer, deeper, richer benefits. And why does this distinction matter so much? I think because Scripture doesn't talk much about goals, but it's deeply focused on our identity, on who we are becoming. Are we becoming more like Jesus by the practices and formations we are doing? Another important difference is the 80% rule, I like to call it. If you set goals and only do them 80% of the time, like working out, for example, you very quickly feel like a failure from all the days you missed. You only think of the 20% of the time you didn't meet your own expectations. But with formations, if you are doing it 80% of the time, you can still very much know that that rhythm is changing your quality of life and who you are fundamentally. Why? Because formations are about the process itself. The process is what makes you who you are. If I'm watering our plants five days a week in our garden instead of seven, those are still going to be awesome, healthy plants. Or if Alyssa and I try to have a rhythm of a weekly date night but only seem to do three a month for a season and miss a week here or there, we know it's helping and it's still connecting us in ways that are very much necessary. Here's a quick way to think about it. Traditional goals are like an arrow aiming for a bullseye. But formations, though, are less like a bullseye and more like an arrow bent in a circle. One is linear and final, yet the other is circular and forever. One doesn't really change you, the other can transform you. It's a subtle difference, but what's beautiful about formations is you get both, the process of becoming and probably the achievement or the finish line too. 
Goals instead tend to only have about a six-month lifespan, while formations you decide on usually weekly or daily for a long, possibly indefinite amount of time. That's because formations are about becoming someone and not doing something. It's about becoming someone through the daily rhythms and practices of your life. Who are you today? Think of yourself at your current stage in life, your job, your romantic interests, your self-development. Now think back two years. Would the you of two years ago be happy or excited with how the last two years panned out in relation to your goals and plans and dreams? When I encourage people to ask themselves that question, the answer is sometimes no. They've ended up in a slightly different place than they were planning. But that's usually because they wanted their beliefs, which includes hopes and dreams about themselves, to get them where they wanted to go. But I don't know one person who could simply think themselves into transformation or a life change, do you? So then, what gets us where we actually want to go? You probably think I'll say being disciplined, or trying harder, or having more willpower. And now, while all of that's partially true or included, I also think it's misleading. Actually, that's the thing that most bothers me about all the self-help and business leadership books currently. Just hustle and work harder, and then you can reach your dreams and have the life you want. Here's the peculiar truth. What forms our identities are the million, tiny, micro-sized actions we all do every day without actually realizing it or thinking twice about it? See, we are the sum of our habits. It's really that simple. Now, if you ask yourself the question above, I bet you can backtrack your last few years and say, yeah, my daily ritualistic behaviors are usually second nature, and they have taken me into this particular direction. Here's the thing about habits. They are less about doing something and more about loving something. We sleep with our phones right by our bed, sometimes even under our pillows, not just because we actively make a choice every morning to look at the news in the world or what our friends are doing. We do it because we love what the phone gives us. There's an ancient call in us that taps the spigot of our desires until the ritual becomes worshipful and mundane. Now, let me pause for a second just to clarify a few of these words, since we will be using them throughout the entire book. There is some overlap and similarity, but also differences between the words habit, ritual, and routine. They are all repeated behaviors, but a routine is mundane, like tying your shoe. And a habit is something that goes a lot deeper into our desires and drives and loves. A habit is a repeated action that is difficult to give up or alter for good or for bad. And a ritual is even deeper. To me, it is a habit of meaning. A ritual is a repeatable action that draws us into a sacred moment. Throughout this book, we will mostly be talking about the last two, habits and rituals, as they are ways of becoming like Jesus that many of us have forgotten about. So now let's talk about habits a little longer. We are a collection of our habits. And the reason habits are stickier and harder to shift or change is that they usually drive deep down into our loves. Our telos, again, our vision of the good life, is revealed through our habits. And our habits are simply the things we love deeply without even realizing it. What we love has the power to control us and give our lives meaning and depth and richness, or it promises to and severely under-delivers. For those listening on the audiobook too, this entire section was very much inspired by James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. I put those 
notes in the footnote section, but if you're not reading the physical book, you can't see that. Phenomenal book and audiobook. Highly suggest it, um, and you'll see a lot of undertones there as well. See, I'm in a marriage, thankfully, where both of us understand God's design for the world, particularly the need for a cup of coffee every single day, first thing in the morning. Unfortunately, I also have a spouse who thinks that even though we both enjoy coffee freshly made at 6 a.m., she should rarely, if ever, be the one to make it. Liz, if you're listening, I love you, and I will always make it. If I went to bed before her, I used to assume that she would prepare it before coming to bed and set the coffee timer for the morning, but then I'd wake up to find that the coffee was not made, bringing me close to passing out as I made it half awake. I'm only joking. If it's not made, I only tend to twitch a little in my right eye before I'm able to brew it myself. Now, coffee is not just about a cup of caffeine, but at this point for us is more about the dance of the morning ritual. The smell begins to conjure up deep and fond memories of quiet, tranquil morning time with journals and books and thinking. Coffee represents the moment. Drinking our morning coffee has become loaded with meaning, with immense attachment and imagery for our daily lives. Because of the meaning of our repeated pattern that we do day by day by day, I now have become the chief designated coffee maker in our family. And guess what? Alyssa genuinely thanks me for it. She's mentioned it multiple times that this little act of service that only takes a few minutes is an enormous blessing to her every single morning when she makes up and shows immense thoughtfulness and love to her. I'll admit, though, that when I first began to take over the coffee preparation, I felt very genuinely and chivalrous and sacrificial, in the tiniest way, obviously, because marriage is ultimately made up of 1,000 microscopic opportunities to sacrifice for each other rather than one big sacrifice. Am I right? Now that we've been doing it so long, I essentially do it out of ritual with a little mix of duty. But here's the point. It's still an act of love. And continually doing it, even once it got mundane, maybe even specifically once it got mundane, is even more an act of love. See, I think following Jesus with rhythm is the same. Even when it becomes dry for a season, it's not necessarily legalistic. But Jesus folks often expect following Jesus to always be free and fun and spontaneous and never ritualistic or liturgical. And if it is, we use that big word, legalism. But what if it's right in the middle? Take the coffee again. I set myself up for failure if I expect to serve my wife only when I feel like it or to make the coffee only on the mornings when my love for her is really pumping in my veins that day. Yet a lot of us do that with Jesus. I call this the, quote, following the camp high, not Jesus syndrome. But it would also be equally bad if I made the coffee every morning purely out of duty and began to harbor bitterness while thinking, why doesn't she ever make the coffee for me? See, making the coffee every day, even when I don't feel like it, is a way to show my love for her in faithful and non-spectacular ordinariness. Now, I don't call that legalism. I call that holiness. Because love isn't just a verb or a noun. Love is actually a habit. Governments have figured out this truth, the Pledge of Allegiance, anyone, and many churchgoers in the Protestant traditions are still calling anything repetitive legalistic. For too long, we've confused legalism with something that takes effort or discipline. Just because we do something over and over again and it might take slight effort does not mean it's all of a sudden immediately legalistic. 
If we cry legalism whenever we do something with repetition or effort or discipline, or when something has the potential to become dry and rote, then by that definition, Jesus was one of the most legalistic people we know, praying the Shema prayer at least three times a day as any faithful Jew, specifically him as a rabbi of the first century, would have been expected to do. Legalism isn't defined by behavior. You can't look at a certain behavior and know immediately that it's legalism because the same behavior can be done in both holy and unholy ways. While the Pharisees are typically thought of as the enemies of Jesus and are the ones we most often picture in our minds when we hear the word legalism, many biblical scholars believe Jesus was actually a Pharisee too, or at least his beliefs and expansion of the Torah more closely aligned with the Pharisees than with any other group in the New Testament, including the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Zealots. Which, by the way, I think is actually why Jesus had the most to say to them, because he theologically lined up with them the most, not exactly, but the most, and they yet were only a hardened outside shell with not a heart of intimacy for God at the center. And so I think that's actually why he critiques the Pharisees the most in the Gospels. But the idea isn't to do things that take repetition. It's to make sure your heart is right if you do. I once heard someone say that rules before love equals legalism and love before rules equals proper gospel formation. How much power, vitality, depth, and richness have we evangelicals left on the table of church history or tradition simply because we thought it looked and smelled too legalistic? We can all be ritualistic whether we like to admit it or not. We read the New Testament and think, I can't believe people had to dress a certain way back then because of certain customs and codes. Yet today, we might think a church is out of touch or not relevant if the worship pastor isn't wearing skinny jeans and the pastor isn't preaching from an iPad. Philosopher James K. Smith made the beautiful observation that the first and last words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John are often overlooked, even though they're very much at the heart of how we change. Jesus asked, do you love me? We are not who we are because we thought our way there. We are who we are because we loved something and chased it, often unwittingly, and we continue to do it over and over and over like a liturgy. Or as Smith puts it, quote, a love-shaping practice. All our liturgies are pointing us somewhere. The practices we do to shape and cultivate our loves are shaping us. And if that's true, liturgy isn't just something you do, it's better defined as something being done to you. We are a culture that leans heavily towards the intellectual, so we are determined to point out harmful ideas or at least ones we disagree with. But because we don't understand that most ideas actually don't enter our lives through thinking them, but rather practicing them unwittingly, then those ideas are able to sneak into our culture in a Navy SEAL Team 6 sort of way changing us and shaping us and forming us before we even realize they're there. And frankly, the people who seem to best understand that we are creatures of love and desire, not thoughts, are the current giant tech companies of the world. Think about how Apple exists with a temple-like space. I mean, tell me their retail stores don't feel so set apart from the ordinary retail experience and design that it doesn't immediately conjure up sacred feelings, where you go to sacrifice enormously large portions of your money to obtain that which you are looking for, connection, meaning, and depth. People stand in line all night, some even camping out on the sidewalk, for the latest device that offers those implicitly understood benefits. This phone can and will be more than a phone. 
I think it's even fair to say that Apple is a religion with Steve Jobs as this pseudo-high priest who has become a venerated secular saint after his death, mediating between God and man to give us what we want, connection, power, and godlike knowledge of good and evil. And so we take that phone and we crouch and we bend over as we look on it, usually with heads bowed, laser-focused on something, beginning to block out all around us. We become silent and solemn, tending not to speak. And then we perform a certain behavior over and over and over again. Sound familiar? Swipe, 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 pull down, swipe, swipe, flick, flick, pull down, refresh. You go to the Middle East, and it's not uncommon to hear a bell ring throughout the day, which means it's time to pray and worship. But in the West, we aren't much different. We hear that ping, and most of us implicitly believe it's time to pray and worship. People hear the bell and get out their mats. We hear the bell and we pull out our phones. It seems we aren't just doing something, but screens and phones are doing something to us. And Apple even operates on its own liturgical calendar with specific and rhythmic dates, what religion tends to call High Holy Days, which is where we actually get our word holiday from, for their new releases and launches. Steve Jobs captured the allure of the product launch. Most people won't show up if you tell them you're unveiling a new car or even your new model of Android phones. Yet Jobs and now Tim Cook have managed to fill theaters year after year with a religious fervor and excitement about what Apple products will be unveiled for that year. Jobs turned the fervor of what new iPhone is coming out this year into not just a consumer event, but a religious event. No one knew better than Steve Jobs that we are story creatures, not information creatures. We don't want facts, we want a way of life. We don't just want the answers, we want a vision of what is good. And it's no coincidence Apple became the first company in history to hit the $1 trillion market cap. The greatest storytellers always win, and Apple surely has. Even in its commercials, Apple tells stories. In one 90-second spot, a family is at Grandma and Grandpa's house for the Christmas festivities. The whole family is laughing and enjoying one another, yet throughout the video, one of the young teenage boys is on his phone. The commercial is set up with beautiful, emotional music to give you all the feels about how awesome Christmas is and how beautiful and amazing and family-centric it is. Yet they are purposely invoking a slight tension as you watch and wonder, hmm, who is this teenage boy and why is he on his phone the whole time? He's missing all the important moments. And that's when the last scene cuts to the living room, with the whole extended family packed on the floor, couches, and with their Christmas PJs and socks on, sipping hot cocoa, facing the TV. The young teenage boy then gets their attention, turns on the TV, and begins to play a little video. And the video is basically a highlight video he put together of his family the last few days while they were together. That's why he'd had his phone out. He was making a family movie. Everyone begins to tear up and cry and hug and thank him for the special gift to the family, and then it cuts to Happy Holidays and the Apple logo. The end. There were absolutely no details or information about what the phone could do, not how fast it is or how many megapixels it has, because Apple knows that that's not what they're selling. They aren't trying to sell you on what the phone does. They're trying to paint a vision of the beautiful life their phone can give you. I'll admit it, the first time I watched that commercial, I thought it was touching and beautiful. But then I wondered, what is this commercial really saying? That the things I so desperately want in life, connection, meaning, and a deep sense of family, this phone can give me? That's a big promise, and I'm not sure 
anyone has checked back to see if they actually really delivered. Once we realize that our daily habits are forming us on a fundamental level, and even more once they become micro-rituals, which are the things we do every day without really realizing them, then we will start paying attention. We begin to ask, are these things doing something to me I don't particularly like or want but don't realize? With all the information we have access to, we want to optimize everything. Our cars have chips, our phones have chips, our Fitbits have chips, all to track and give us data we didn't even know we needed so we can make more adjustments. We audit our finances, our diet, we audit everything. But what would it look like if we looked at the books of our micro-liturgies? Because here's the thing, you are becoming someone and something. You are being formed, you are an image that is reflecting something. But we need to resist reflecting and participating in the hustle that turns us into something we aren't. Why? Because I want to be more than just an efficient, driven, ambitious, goal-oriented, achievement-based human. When I envision that person in the future, I don't see a loving human presence. I see a machine. And that's what most of us are pointing our telos towards without actually realizing it. Yet there's a bigger and better, more truthful telos that our hearts long for deep down. The telos of flourishing as the image of God found in Jesus. True humanness. That is the goal and the objective, and that is what we lost the minute that fateful curse in the garden shattered it all. But we can find our way back. How? Through the truly human one named Jesus. I want to be formed and shaped and molded into his image, to be more like him, to look like him, and to walk at his pace, to respond to the world with his gentleness and grace to reign and rule and build and create and cultivate under his loving and sacrificial authority. But to do that, I have to look in his face, meet with him, stay at his feet, spend time with him, to live in repeatable practices and formations that consistently put myself before him. I have to shape my space and my habits away from my false self and push myself into becoming a true full image bearer of him day by day by day. 